Welcome to the 45th episode of Every Time Eternal. It's been, I think, almost two years since we recorded our last episode, but we promised many people that we'll eventually be back, and today is the day. With me tonight are our, one of our previous hosts, Matt Pavlik, Bob Wang, and a very special guest, Legacy, I guess we used to call it World Champion, but now it's like, let's say Eternal Weekend winner, Hans-Jakob Gottig. Hello, everyone. So, if you've never listened to one of our previous 44 episodes, um, Everyday Eternal is basically one of the oldest legacy and vintage-focused podcasts that we have around. And Matt, why wouldn't you go ahead and uh, tell us a bit about Everyday Eternal? Like, I only joined the team uh, somewhere around late 2013, but you've been around from the very beginning. What can you tell our listeners about the podcast? Hi, everyone. So welcome back. And Everyday Eternal has been around since, I guess, about mid-2013, when I decided that I had nothing better to do but talk about legacy. No. Um, there were no real legacy or vintage-focused podcasts at the time that were really giving a lot of information that people kind of wanted to hear about and what they wanted to talk about. So I decided that we should do that. So I rounded up a few people that I knew from MTG The Source, including Jacob Corey or Kobe, Sam and Sean O'Brien, and uh, we decided that we would get together and talk about uh, Legacy. So uh, over the time, we guess I guess we had about two years worth of solid episodes, and then as you know, as people grow older and with more responsibilities, we uh, kind of faded into the distance. As we all decided that we had other things to do, we focused less and less time on the podcast, and eventually we discontinued recording. So right now, Jacob has vanished into Los Angeles somewhere. Sam has been swallowed up by the oils coming out of the, coming out of the ground in Texas. And Sean has been banned probably from every website that he's ever been on. Including the source. Is, including the source and is now strictly on probably the mana drain and some sort of anti-brainstorm hate group. So yeah he, he runs his own podcast now i think it's called uh tusk tusk talk yeah tusk that's talk. the one yeah. And, yeah exactly and we're not gonna go that direction so we're gonna try and uh kind of build the podcast back up and hopefully keep you listeners listening and uh talk with some real people with some real results and just get back on track Basically, a lot of you have been co contacting me, and I'm sure, Matt, you also got a lot of requests to when we would actually revive the podcast. And it's about time. So, Matt, why wouldn't you bring us up to speed what you've been up to in, during the last two years? Uh, so, the last two years, I kind of slowly got out of magic. Not 100%, but I wasn't really following uh, the meta too much. I was in and out on the source for for a while. But I had other commitments, so school is just coming to an end, but I also joined the military. That's been taking up quite a bit of my time, and now that kind of everything is wrapping up with school, I should be able to see Rhino people uh, a lot more often. I noticed that you started posting a lot in the source again, especially like in the chunk threads and basically in every thread that would consider splashing or running Siege Rhino. So that was like a pretty pleasant surprise because I knew that you've been super busy over the last two years. So it's glad to see you back on, but maybe not on the grind, but in the game. Yeah. So when you came to visit me when June? June, yeah. After GP Vegas. Yeah. It kind of got me interested in really getting back into it. Unfortunately, I was deployed over the summer. 
so I wasn't able to play. However, when I came back from deployment, it was kind of like, ah, I've got this itch that I should really start playing again. So I started posting on the source and I started going back to the legacy weeklies that we have around here. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So uh, for Bob, basically you also became pretty much one of the permanent hosts of Everyday Eternal uh, towards the end of its life cycle or the first life cycle before we basically created it. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been up to over the last couple of years? Or let's say two yeah, years. So, Legacy-wise, but also real, sure. real life um, So yeah, unlike Matt, I've been like really tuned into the metagame. I've been like, you know, on the grind, so to speak. I I did do some traveling actually in between. Um, so I went for three months backpacking in Southeast Asia. But like other than that, I've been playing a lot of Magic. Since I moved in with Honorog last year, I've also, you know, started playing Magic online. Um, and so I've been, you know, pretty much getting to know Legacy, and it's I guess it's paid off at least in the past two weeks. <laughs> oh yeah, we we're certainly going to talk about that because there's some pretty big news about you, but also about HJ, which we will talk about later on. As for me, I've just been grinding all these European tournaments, like the MKM series, also the Bazaar of Moxen series, but it was still around. But I've also been traveling a lot for work. You guys know that, or if you don't know, um, I work for a hotel on the Kenyan coast. So it's like usually traveling all around to Europe, trying to find more people who want to come to Kenya. And I'm also just about to move into my new apartment. So once that is done, I I finally hope that I will have some more time for streaming as well as like writing more articles and creating this podcast, which is like one of the first things I wanted to do. So if you guys don't follow Julian on Twitter, you should definitely follow him. Uh, because he has an amazing picture of the photo he needed to take to get an apartment, and it's beautiful. But if, but, but I think I was a an integral part of that uh, photo as well. Oh, you? Which do you mean the the headshot I took? Yeah. Oh, is that so special? <laughs> like uh, around here, it's it's super common that you have to take a headshot and submit it if you want to apply for an apartment. I think I think the tie made the whole headshot though. Oh yeah, that, that that was a gift that I got from you when you were in Europe like two two years ago. That is correct. <laughs> so, what has happened in Legacy over the last couple of weeks? Uh, something that probably blew everyone's mind was Eternal Weekend, where we had over seven hundred people for the Legacy main event, and also four hundred thirty people for the Vintage main event, which was probably Wait, like more than double what people expected. Yeah, so wasn't it in like 2015 there was a bunch of players and 2016 went down. Now we're at 4:30. Bob, can you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, I think no, I think that's right. I think 2015, if I remember, because I won, um, it was 744 for Legacy, but then in 2016 it moved from Philly to Columbus, and then it went down to I want to say 600 plus, and then you know back they moved back to Pittsburgh and it's 700. So I think location is you so know pretty key. Yeah, I was going to say, is Columbus like a giant shithole compared to Philly, or is Philly the shithole? I don't really Philly's know. much nicer, um, <laughs> in my opinion. Columbus is also farther out and harder to get to. Yeah, it's it's great to see growth, I guess, in the format, at least tournament pay, uh, turnout wise. And since this is the first podcast, the first episode after we revived the podcast, we invited the very best player we could get from that tournament which is Hans-Jakob Gollick. Hans, hey. Hey, guys, and uh, thank you for giving me that intro. I'm nice to, uh, it's nice to know that I place above uh, Bob in, uh, in your regard. <laughs> <laughs> At least for this tournament. <laughs> we, can oh, oh, we don't, need to, uh, we don't need to talk details about uh, how we contextualize the statement. <laughs> so so Hans-Jakob 
And that's what I'm going to call you now. So who who the hell are you? <laughs> I've never that's heard a, that's that's a good question. Um, I guess I can give my 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 background in in magic uh, at least. <laughs> so um, so I've been playing magic for about ten years competitively. Um, I, I have sort of a you know the, the trail of going from uh, the typical trail of going from draft player to standard player. Uh, and by now, since I uh, have become a little bit more adult and have a work and stuff, I usually just play Legacy. Um, so I play mostly online. So the people who've seen me uh, might see me online as HJ underscore Kaiser. Um, at least that's where I tend to figure out at events that a lot of people actually happen to know me. But that's sort of where I'm from, so to speak. Yeah, basically, where are you actually from? Like, we know that you are a lot on, on Magic Online, but which place in Europe are you from? Oh well, uh, so I'm uh, I'm from Copenhagen, so I'm Danish. I uh, I'm currently in the U.S., so I happen to uh, I have a project going on over here for a couple of months. So so that's why I'm uh, sort of I'm based in San Francisco at the moment. So the story of you flying out to steal the North American Eternal Weekend Championship—that's not real. It's you just happen to be there. Well, he flew out from uh, San Francisco. I, I still think he flew out though. Actually, going from San Francisco to Pittsburgh is actually about the same cost and almost the same flying time as coming in from Copenhagen. I don't have which is a little bit ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a true statement, I'm sure. I just... It is... Uh, the, the distances in this country are truly, truly shocking. So when I came over here, I thought, you know, hey, I'm going to the US, I'm going to play all the US tournaments, hit up the entirety of the SCG circuit, anything that looks like a GP. And then I started actually looking at flight prices and I uh, slightly reconsidered some of it. <laughs> so did you actually travel a lot ever since you went to San Francisco or was this like your first major tournament that you played? Uh, this was the first major one that I traveled to. Um, I happened to be, uh, you know, almost uh, uh, 20 minutes away from the Channel Fireball Game Center. So I, they had uh, like, a, I don't know if it was a one or two free K, but a sort of a hundred main tournament that I top aided two weeks before that. But that's sort of the extent of my, my travels. I, I might do a few GPs while I'm here. Ah, yeah, cool. So uh, obviously I've known you for longer than the other guys. I think I've uh, first the first time I met you was at some bazaar of Moxon where I actually thought that your name was H.J. Kaiser. And then I wondered why there was no Kaiser understandings when I was looking for you. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us something about some of your previous magic accomplishments i've know i've seen you in a couple of top eights in europe at times and i also took that sweet picture of you and yoshi when you top aided i think some of vino Gedon or something so how successful yeah, have you been over here yeah so i'm i mean i would um i wouldn't place myself as sort of the, the, the top top of legacy but i i do have a few wins um I was trying to count and I couldn't quite find the number of how many times I've top aided Danish Legacy Masters. Uh, our sort of a local one, I think it's four or five, uh, including a win. I have Uvedo uh, So you're basically the. the yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt Continue. you, but you, so you're basically a Danish Legacy Champion? Yeah, I have that title. I must admit the North American Legacy Champion is a little bit more fancy. <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> no offense to your home country, I guess. <laughs> no offense to my home country. 700 people might be slightly higher than 100, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Did you play Death in Texas in that tournament? I have played against Death in Texas, if that's what you are asking. Uh, in Denmark, <laughs> we refer to it as the White Plague. Um, and, uh, 
You know, ever since uh, um, Enovolsen started winning with it, uh, we try to uh, to uh, kill it off systematically, and we don't always succeed. But uh, it happens. Yeah. I actually, I actually, my first, no, my second top eight in Danish uh, Legacy Masters, I lost the finals against Enovolsen playing Death in Texas. I was on Canadian at the time. Uh, I oh, have a okay, horrible so that- win record against the guy. <laughs> uh, I guess a lot of people can say that. Even with Elves, like he gives me the hardest games on Magic Online of all Death and Texas players. Whenever I see him paired against him, it's like tough. Really the guy, tough. the guy is a beast. Also, for some reason, he just tends to always have the right matchup. So if I play Canadian, he's played Death and Texas. Before that, I was playing various control decks, and he always played this like really, really hardcore blue white Baneslayer Angel control deck with chalices, and <laughs> always just went way over the top of whatever I was doing. So he's both a better player and he tends to have matchup advantage. So maybe we should send him to North America next year. Oh, <laughs> no, certainly. But, I guess. certainly. <laughs> but, but he probably couldn't do any better than you already did. Well, I, so, that would be hard in the same tournament, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm happy true. he wasn't there to take away my trophy. <laughs> so for how long are you going to stay in the US? Are you going to play in the, the tournament weekend next year or are you going to come back to Europe? Uh, I'll be back into Europe. Either it will be uh, around Christmas or it might be by February, but that's sort of the timeline. I'm currently looking into coming back for GP Seattle just to play that one, but we'll have to see how that works with planning. Uh, I heard you mentioned you already played Death in, Te- uh, Death in Texas, Canadian Threshold in the past. So have you been on Delver decks for long? Because that's pretty much all I remember you for, specifically Buck Delver or Team America, as you might call it. Yeah, I've pretty much been playing Delver. Uh, Ever pretty much since I started playing Legacy, uh, and Bug Devil was my first sort of real serious uh, Legacy deck. I've played Canadian for a while. I sometimes veer off and do other things. So I've been playing, you know, I played Miracles for now for a couple of months. But I tend to always return to Team America for some reason. For good reason, I would say. Well, I did. Uh, I do well with it, and I, I think maybe uh, <laughs> I might have a better understanding of that deck than I do so many others. Yeah. Talk, speaking of your understanding of the deck, I got your list opened up here. I was wondering whether you could like talk about it for a bit, because most people who see the list will probably look at the f- number of Tarmogoyfs of three and like tilt their head and, and, and give you that weird look. I would, Maybe you can just three, like introduce us to... <laughs> three is a great number. I don't know if people are all caught up on fours. But but guys, there's not three Tarmogoyfs in this deck. There's five Tarmogoyfs in this deck. You just oh, don't two of them are flying. <laughs> yeah, two of them are just better Tarmogoyfs. <laughs> I, I count Tombstalkers as, uh, as Tarmogoyfs. I play five Tombstalkers, but uh, uh, people tell me that's not uh, necessarily easy to cast. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> <laughs> so you should think of the Tarmogoyfs as, uh, you know, very extra Tombstalkers. Tombstalkers that are easier to cast, but not always as impressive. Kind of, exactly. Now, um, <laughs> I, maybe I can put a few words to the list. Uh, so I want to start out, uh, just uh, zoom out a little bit uh, before we get into individual numbers. So the reason why I think Team America is good is because it's flexible. So Team America is not the best Delver deck. I, I unfortunately have to concede that. Bob in a moment is going to talk to you about what's the best Delver deck in the format. That's not Team America. What Team America is, however is it secretly also a control deck, and it's secretly also one of the most hateful disruptive decks in the format. And what makes the deck great is its ability to shift between those roles depending on matchups. Uh, And that's why I think uh, when you look at the deck, really you need to look at it as a 75 deck, card deck, 
uh, with the sideboard forming an integral part of the main deck. You know, we we can deep dive into a couple of the the specific card choices, but but just I would just like to start highlighting a couple of key packages. If you look at the main deck, uh, there's a couple. Most of the main deck is actually rather fixed. So you know, you will always play four Deathrite Shamans, and you will pretty much always play four Delvers. Um, and there's some there's some removal. There are brainstorms. There are uh, you know forces and hymns. Those are relatively fixed. Uh, you can flex some things. The things that are mainly sort of big choices in the main deck is whether to play Tombstalkers or Dark Confidence. And then it's what your sort of other grind cards are, whether it's the old Liliana, it's Sylvan Library, you can play Loam, you can play Jace Main. Currently it's the Lilianas of the Last Hopes and the Sylvan Library. So tell us, what do you like specifically about Liliana the Last Hope? Because that card has seen a lot more play over the last couple of weeks and months. That that card yeah, is slowly so becoming my favorite. It it has been absolutely amazing. And and the more I play it, the happier I, I get with about it. And the, the reason it's really good is it's really good against all the things you have a hard time beating. For so example? The card, Baleful Strix, is a nightmare to play against. And Liliana makes it look super embarrassing. Death and Taxes and Elves are both matchups that are hard pre-bought. They get significantly better post-bought, but pre-bought can be pretty tough. And, uh, I mean, the last Legacy Challenge, I cast uh, Turn Free Liliana the Last Hope, two games in a row, and the whole thing lasted 20 minutes, and the guy scooped and was never in the game. And it, it's just, I mean, it, it does, against the creature decks, it murders their entire board. Against the, uh, against the control decks, they can never really kill it. So when you play against Checkpile, they just sit there and look at it until it ultimates and kills them. Oh, that sounds like Nyssa and Fs, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's likely true. So that's kind of, I mean, that's that's why the card is uh, is great. It's not actually, so the commentators uh, were talking a lot about its ability against Grixis Delver. I, I'm not actually really convinced it's that good in the Delver mirror because uh, it costs about infinite infinite mana to cast. It, it fits really well into the deck and, and what you need to do. So are there any specific weaknesses that you feel the current list that you played still has? Is there anything like that you really don't want to face? Honestly, not a lot. Uh, you know, you can point to a little some fringe decks. The hard common matchups, Grixis Delver. I'm not super happy about playing against Grixis Delver. It might be 50-50-ish. It could, it's likely slightly disadvantaged, but it feels really bad. Other sort of aggressive Delver decks, like Blue-Red Delver, can be a little bit annoying. The Stoneblade decks, if they go hardcore on Snapcaster Mages, can be tough, uh, because they can grind you out. Yeah. And then you have a number of matchups that are bad pre-board, but get much better post-board. The last yeah, thing, that... I guess, which you really don't want to face is lands. I, I don't ever, ever want to play against lands with you this list. You should your Winter Orbs. Those, those are good cards, you know. I don't actually own them in beta, but I, I have played Winter Orb against Lance, and I can confirm it's good. I will actually, by the way, so now we're in uh, storytelling mode. Jonathan Alexander has been getting a lot of credit for introducing Winter Orb in Canadian, for those who are in the know on that. And I would just like to claim that, and you can Google it for my Danish Legacy Masters lists. I have been playing Winter Orbs for years, and uh, that, uh, I, that he adopted that tech from me. I, I just want to stake my claim here. Oh, did he officially adopt the tech from you, or was it like, no, no, I found this on my own? I mean, people have been aware of the card forever, I guess, but Jonathan oh, is surely I, I the guy who put it like, I, into I this I definitely plucked scene. the card completely out of thin air. Oh, you did? I, I did, I did. No, I didn't. No, 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 no. I think people were playing, <laughs> people were playing it in some one-offs online before that. Oh, but I think okay. yeah, the conversation yeah. with Jonathan was definitely uh, 
I, I was definitely a part of that conversation earlier. Yeah. You told us that the deck is pretty flexible. There's hardly any really bad matchups except for lands and that you feel pretty comfortable playing this in any given tournament. So I know I've talked to you about the deck before, like at some tournament and, uh, during the last years, and people had asked you about a couple of what they considered weird plays that you made. And especially one of them stuck with me, and that's what I want to talk to you about. Because every time your opponent goes turn one Deathrite Shaman, you told me that you have to force a fill that card. And while it's not an uncommon play, it's certainly not something that people heavily commit on in Legacy unless they feel like it makes sense in that spot. But you once told me that, especially in the Deathrite Shaman mirror, you really want to get like Deathrite supremacy or whatever you want to call it. Like you, you really want to be the guy who has like more Deathrite Shamans active. Is that still <laughs> something you do? I've gone down on it a lot, uh, but I used to, and and it comes back to how does how Fatal pushes the big change. So if you look at the black-green mirror, really, so the people who play Abrupt Decays, it used to be the case that all of the removal costs two mana and all of the spells cost one mana. So what happens if I have a turn one Deathrite Shaman? Then, you know, you go one drop, then I go two drop and waste you. Who's winning this game? I am. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it goes the other way as well. And so what tended to happen was that Deathrite Shaman just gave you such an insane tempo boost that it was so hard to catch up from. Yeah. Uh, I, I think my big, you know, the big sort of symbol of that was the uh, the Shardless uh, bug matchup. People used to think that the bug mirror was about grinding, but really it's, uh, it's and it feels kind of bad to say this, it used to be about who could actually just walk over the opponent and just, uh, you know, blow out the opponent going turn one Deathrite, turn two, two drop Wasteland, that sort of opening. So you would say that Fatal Push really changed the way you play the, the mirror or like what you call the black-green mirror? It, it does and... to, a, to a great extent. I'm less inclined to force death right now. I, I might still do it, but I'm less inclined to do it automatically. Okay. Yeah, to me that's interesting because I, when playing elves, I always felt that like I'm super far ahead in the first game against Bugdiver for the specific reason you mentioned that like if I go turn one Deathrite Shaman and you abruptly decayed on the second turn, you lost much more tempo than I did. The, their lack of one mana removal is always like used to be what what made Bugdiver the best matchup for elves, and it got so much harder post board when they got disfigure. But now that this figure is main deck playable in the form of Fatal Push, the matchup certainly changed against Fs, and I assume that's the same for a lot of other matchups. So I can certainly see what you're saying about like not forcing Deathrite Shaman all the time anymore. Is there anything else like that's very specific to how you approach matchups or how you play the deck or something that people do wrong with the deck? It's, that you sometimes uh, notice? It's, it's really about the sideboard. You have to think of this as, uh, it, it's back to that sort of who's the beat down, right? The deck can be a very good aggro deck. It can be a very good control deck. It can be a very good disruptive deck. It can't always be all of them at the same time. You really fit it to the matchup. So when you play against the creature decks, so I do a couple of different things. First of all, I routinely bought out Delver. So I'll do things like I play against Death and Taxes. And I will, or elves, it's kind of the same actually. And I bring in the Jace, uh, I bring Jaces, I bring in Loams, I bring in whatever other Toxic. heavy cards I have, and I bring in all the sweepers. And then I just play Bug Control. And that change completely changes the matchup on its head. Oh, that's uh, really interesting because you basically you're trying to emulate what we used to have in the format in the form of like Buckstill that played like Deeds and stuff, but now you play Toxic Deluge and that slot. Do you also bring Massacre against elves? I'm just curious. Uh, yes, yes, I do. 
Uh, by also, the way, you really want to play that, yeah. a very long game. Oh, I certainly want to play a long game. And and I actually, I mean, Julian, I don't know if I would be favored against you, but against most Elves players, uh, across a free uh, game match, I feel quite favored with this list, actually. Yeah, um, you would certainly catch me by surprise because I, I would totally expect you to keep the Divers because that's the most scary thing I, like I can ever see out of a Diver deck. Turn 1 Diver, turn 2 Diver, that's how... If I lose to Delva, and I mean, everybody knows that Elves is usually somewhat favored, but if I lose to Delva, it's usually on the back on turn one, turn two Delva. I mean, that's the strength of this deck is Delva is not always the, the best card. In fact, in many legacy matchups, you don't want to be a Delva deck. And in those matchups, you don't have to be a Delva deck. You just uh, throw them out and become a control deck, right? And when the control plan is bad, if your opponent is going over the top of you, playing Punishing Fires and what have you, then you just play Delvas and you Delva them. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny how you how you describe that transition from like a diver deck to a control deck because that's pretty much how checkpile came into being. People know or maybe they don't know, but the the guy who popularized the deck was was Thomas Marr from uh, the Czech Republic, and he used to play diver in a pretty grindy four color shell. And eventually, like after years of playing it that way, he dropped the Delvas and he went like, "Hey, I want to be the control deck in most of the matchups, so let's just commit to it pre board." And that's pretty much how Checkpile came into place. Your deck is also like postbot, certainly moving into that direction, but you certainly wouldn't drop the Delvas from any of your lists in the main deck, right? Still... <laughs> I have tried many times. I really, really, <laughs> really want to cut Delva. I think it's the uh, most horrible card in the deck. I don't like it. But every time I cut it, my win rate goes down. Delva is such it's such a strong catch-all for the game one plan. But again, you know, when you play postboard, people bring in all sorts of removal to so that they can have more removal with all their snapcaster mages. And your Delvas just look so embarrassing and you get plowed all day. Oh, that's so interesting because that reminds me of how I speak about natural order all the time. Like it's super strong in the first game, but postboard it gets quite embarrassing at times, and you just want to grind out your opponent. To me, it's just interesting, like how how these these signature cards of certain decks, like Delva and Buck Delva or Natural Order and Elves, which is probably one of the first cards people think of when they think about the deck. Like the people who actually play those decks a lot, they they are certainly not in love with those cards. <laughs> I wonder if there's a, a certain pattern for other decks. Like, I don't know, do do some Death and Texas players bought out Wild or... I don't know. Does Matt I, uh, ever bought out Siege Rhino? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You do? Why would you? Because it's not really good against Tess, so... I mean, it's pretty good in a damage race against Goblins, right? True. And it's it's good against a Nauseam, right? They, they have to Nauseam for free less. Matt, have you ever killed somebody of show and tell putting in Siege Rhino? Yes. Yes, I have. I've also killed someone from... They had an Ensnaring Bridge... And I was like, how am I going to break? I, I don't have any removal left. So I was playing Recurring Nightmare, and they just Recurring Nightmare Siege Rhinos until they died. See, and this is why Matt is on the podcast. <laughs> recurring Nightmare Legacy. The last time I played Recurring Nightmare Legacy was eight years ago, dude. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> I, I can tell you, I have uh, with Canadian, I have killed people by Recurring Loam uh, Barbarian Pit for 10 damage. Barbarian Ring. Yeah, but Baron Ring is some super sweet tech in, in Canadian. I've seen that before, and also uh, maybe Jonathan stole that from you too, but I've seen him oh, kill no, Mother of Runes and stuff with that. Tech. That is definitely yeah. his tech. Um, <laughs> I've been really trying to make Cable Pit work in Team America. I think uh, Jonathan might claim that it's still good. I'm, I'm not so sure. But the, but in the in the Canadian deck, it's definitely sweet tech. Going back to the tournament, Eternal Weekend, uh, can you tell us a couple of highlights about your run in the Swiss and the top eight? Like, How many rounds do you guys actually play? You were around 700, so it's, I don't know, 
You told 11, me. 11 Swiss rounds. So I was I was sort of joking around on the day that I don't think I have ever played 11 rounds on a day and not won the tournament. Thankfully, I guess that's what happened. But uh, it was an in, intensely long tournament. I think we're done at like 10 p.m. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, I guess you've been pretty exhausted. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was very grateful that the top eight the next day was not in the morning or not straight after the tournament. So did you have any buys in that tournament or did you have to grind through all of the 11 rounds? I had to grind through all of the 11 rounds. So my, my first game, my opponent, uh, we roll the die, and he uh, confidently declares that he's going to be on the draw. Okay, one of this? Yep. Oh. I think, oh shit, is this going to end here? <laughs> this is where it ends. <laughs> I, I didn't put that on the list of bad matchups, but it's... Uh, it's generally bad, particularly since I usually play without surgical extractions. I ended up beating him without ever seeing a surgical extraction, uh, which I think is kind of magical. I don't know how that happened, but it did. But I, that was a place I thought I was going to die. My uh, my my second round was against a show-and-tell player, and both in games two and three, he flashed me white ley line. Okay. Uh, and I, I thought about the fact that I had put two, uh, four Caesars in my sideboard instead of more blue cards. And I thought I was going to die every turn, and I didn't. He just didn't have it. He just did not have it. Like every t I forced a couple of times, and he just did not have it. But uh, I was, uh, I was uh, scared. Very scared. And then I played against a Maverick guy where, um, again, I was sort of, I was joking around with one of the Miracles players who said he killed 14 creatures in 14 turns against Grixis Delver. And I'm quite convinced that I killed more creatures in that time span against the Maverick guy. Because the guy had Palace Jailer, I think, in all three games. And I had Sylvan Library and Jace, and or Jace, in all three games. And so we had games that uh, lasted for quite a while. And narrowly, by the way, I killed him in turn five of extra turns. Just in time. Just in time. Uh, apart from that, I think the I had you know the I had a fairly I had good luck I would say uh, both in terms of matchups but also in terms of of games I did things like I had a triple Delva draw against Death and Texas on camera which was in game one which was quite nice I did mm -hmm. uh, I, I managed to completely uh, flatten Brian uh, Cook again uh, not by I won't claim that I was a better Magic player unless you count number of hymns drawn as a Magic skill. <laughs> Oh, it certainly helps. It, it certainly helps. Uh, the first game, he was a little bit uh, obnoxious because he tried to go off before I cast my second him. Uh, so he tried to go off on turn three and hit my force of will, which I felt very oh sad about since I was about to give him, you know, the turn two, turn three him. But uh, my, my life is sad, right? I got there. And you didn't face any lands, I guess? I did not face any lands, thankfully. Yeah. So, did he go entirely undefeated in the Swiss? Uh, yes, I went 10-0-1. I unfortunately couldn't draw the, the second to last round because no one else was undefeated. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> you were so far ahead of everyone else, man. These guys don't even want to draw. Well, I guess I'm just going to beat this guy then. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's, that's what happened. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, what were your matchups in the quarterfinals and the semis? And of course, the finals. So the quarter was uh, Brian Kowal playing Grixis Delver. Uh, he used to play Elves, by the way. Traitor. Did. Oh, <laughs> I think um, I originally, he came in at eighth place and I heard he was playing Delver. I was like, oh shit, now I have to play against Grixis Delver. This is where it could end again. And then I look at his list and his list has things like two Snapcaster Mages main deck, only four spot removals and uh, one Tombstalker, no Gurma Ganglers. Yeah. I was like, okay. 
Fine, this is going to be uh, the nicer part of a Delver deck. Because basically the problem is that usually Grixis Delver goes under me because all of their spells cost less mana, so they do the same thing, just cheaper. But he's trying to go a step above me, and, and that's when I have Tarmogoyfs and Tombstalkers and more removal and sweepers. And Liliana and Sylvan Library. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, he even uh, he bought it out his Delvers uh, game two. I think that was uh, might have been a slight mistake on his part. So you think he he was actually the beatdown and and he should have tried to make that work. Yeah, he should have tried to be the beatdown. I think from what I know the match. Like I do things like bought out him because it's too slow. Yeah, I okay. think I think as you mentioned before, like Bug Delver is a lot more flexible, and I have boarded out Delver in Bug Delver. But I would never board out Bug Delver in, you know, my Lightning Bolt Delver deck. No, it's, it's a little bit... I mean, I can see, and, and I would like maybe that's a discussion we have when we start talking about Grixis Delver. I mean, my guess is you could do sort of the same types of strategies in Grixis Delver. I haven't tried. But in this particular matchup, I would certainly be afraid of doing it. Yeah, I'm also looking at Brian's list, and there's not really much for him to bring in from the sideboard. Like, he can bring in, I don't know, Love yeah, Pyroblasts. Collagen's Command, Lavamancer. And then if you really want to take out Delvers, maybe Flusterstorm. Dismember to kill the Tombstalker. But it, it's nothing that's really amazing. There's like no engine there. Yeah, he brought in removal. I think he brought in the Flusterstorms as well. And then he shaved, uh, he also shaved a couple of forces, which to me is a, that's a big issue when I play creatures that he basically cannot kill. And speaking of creatures that, you, uh, that nobody can kill, uh, how do you feel about True Name Nemesis in this deck, in Back Delver? I have uh, two things to say about True Name Nemesis. One, it's a very, very good effect for a Delver deck. Uh, because, again, it, it gives you that angle of attack when your Delver is bad. You can do something that, you know, they can't deal with. But the problem with it in this deck is that, you know, you have this card that's kind of like True Name Nemesis, except it's bigger and it costs two mana, and it's called Tombstormer. <laughs> uh, it does you everything really like True Name Nemesis does just better. <laughs> Yeah, which cards do actually kill Tombstalker? Like Salts of Plowshares? Path Exile, come on. All yeah. the white cards, right? All the white cards kill Tombstalker. But if and who you wants to play white cards in Legacy part. right now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, I mean, now, now you're giving me ideas. Maybe I should try Tombstalker and Elves just for the sake of it. I mean, you could. There are a number of decks in Legacy where the moment you put a Tombstalker on the table, they just sort of sit there and look at it. And then it eats five lives and turn on until they're dead. <laughs> That, that's like Form of the Dragon, basically. And it's basically what it does, right? Like, Checkpile can never kill it. The Devil Mirror can never kill it. The uh, Four-Color Lone Decks can never kill it. Like, and, and those are generally, apart if you sort of segregate from the Miracle stack, those are all the decks that play a ton of removal. All the decks that play a ton of removal can never kill Tombstalker. <laughs> now, if they play Miracles, they also play Sweepers. So at that point, it doesn't really matter if it's a Tombstalker or a Tornade Nemesis. It still dies to their Terminus. So, speaking of not being able to kill Tombstalker, how do you actually kill Tombstalker? Like, I see a dismember on the sideboard. Oh, so this um, is one of the things that's super bad against when playing against a typical Grixis deck, is I have no ways of handling Gurmagangler. Gurmagangler oh, that's why you mentioned that Brian not having Gurmaganglers was like a big bonus for you? Yeah, it, it does the same thing as Tombstalker, just quicker and faster. So, in the semifinals, tell us about the semis. Yeah, so I played against... Hanny, and he was playing uh, that sort of mentor blade deck. He was actually the guy I beat in round 10. I, oh, the I guy who couldn't draw? The guy who couldn't draw, so I, I killed him in round 10, and then he apparently won round 11 and got in anyways. Uh, and then we faced again in the semi. And I think he considered himself a, a huge, uh, quite a, quite the underdog to the control plan. 
you'll also notice if you look at his list that normally I'm afraid of, of Stoneblade decks out of principle because they tend to have a lot of Snapcaster mages and removal and stuff. But if you look at his list, he doesn't really have any sweepers. He has one Toxic Deluge and some engineered explosives, which doesn't really bother me too much. He doesn't really have a lot of Planeswalkers and card advantage either. Um, yeah, he, he seems pretty pretty committed on, on four Monastery Mentor that he plays. He also doesn't have any Snapcaster Mages. He's definitely all in on the Monastery Mentor. And I think that's likely good in a lot of other matchups, but but against me, Monastery Mentor is not very good against him decks because it tends to be the last card they play, and then you just point a removal spell on it and move on in life. Uh, on top of that, I think he, he seemed a little bit nervous in the match. Uh, he, he certainly made mistakes. That, yeah, that yeah I, I actually was important. quite critical of him because I felt that he was playing a little slow, and that's one thing I really, really don't like. He later comment, commented on it on the source, and he mentioned that he was like super nervous, and he hadn't played in like months or even years, and so he was coming back to Legacy, and yeah, he, he didn't really feel comfortable playing. And I think it showed, but it's still pretty great that he made like top four of a 700 people event. I mean, clearly he must have been doing something right at, so, yeah. at points in the tournament, right? So I'm a little bit uh, doubtful of, of putting too much criticism on him. Uh, you know, I, it sounds like it's something around It's a little bit of being under the camera. He also mentioned that he was uh, he thought the matchup was, was bad based on the fact that I 2-0'd him the day before. So that was it. I think, again, I, I was actually, if you look, look at my, when I looked at this top eight, the decks that I were afraid of were the three uh, Grixis Delver decks. And thankfully, I, uh, you know, the, I got the good one of them in round eight. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Bob ended up uh, going out in the quarters as well. I think they were, people were, su- were, and, uh, were successively perfect. crushed by the uh, Eldrassi deck. And then I got to have an Eldrassi deck in the finals, which was awesome. What's the Eldrazi matchup like? Like, you obviously came out ahead, but did you feel comfortable playing it? Uh, yes, 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 I did. I mean, it's a very volatile matchup. So it's one of those where, you know, sometimes they just have it all and you die and it's not close. And sometimes you hum them and then you waste them and then they don't get to play magic and you bulldoze them. I consider it favorably, but favorable, but not sort of super, super favorable. And it's primarily based on the fact that you have, I think, two things. One is the fact that you have creatures that are sometimes bigger than theirs. So you can actually go toe-to-toe with their Fortnites and their Reality Smashers at times. Mm-hmm. The uh, second thing is, unlike other Delver decks, I don't always lose to Chalice. Yeah. Again, sometimes they hit the right hand and, and Chalice just locks me out and I'm dead. But often you get these times where they Chalice you and you're like, okay, so I have this blue card that I'm not going to pitch to force. And I have this Daze that still works. And I have this Tamogoyf that still kills them. And I have this Hymtotorach that still kills them. And, and I of course Tombstalker. <laughs> and Tombstalker, which is pretty hard to challenge, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> And then on top of that, the, the, the Hymn package, the Hymn Wasteland package means that sometimes you just keep them from playing Magic. Uh, yeah, Eldrazi is surprisingly susceptible to, to mana denial. Like, you would think that they could get out, like, a turn to Thotnots here and ride that to victory. But if there's nothing else, they, like, if you stick a Tarmogoyf afterwards, uh, even though you might have lost some tempo from the wasteland, then the Tarmogoyf just trumps the, the Thotnots here. Yeah, it's that effect of, you know, their best draws beat our best draws. But if you have sort of the, the middle draws or the bad draws opposite each other, we can't. Like, Team America comes out ahead. So on average, it's it's slightly favored for you, depending yeah, on sideboards, I guess. I'm, I'm happy to play against it. So Hans Jakob Goddick, 
you took down this event. You are like what people in the past considered the legacy world champion. Now it's probably like a weird way to phrase it, the legacy world champion, brackets, North America, whatever. Tell us, like the most important question we have to ask here, what did you do with the oversized Savannah that you got? I sold it on the spot. And then oh, I, you did? I went to home. a dealer? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, For an uh, undisclosed amount of cash, um, but uh, to me, actually, a rather surprising amount. Well, the right, we don't want to make you tell us how much you got for it, but the number that usually goes around for a card like this is like a five-figure amount. At least that's what I heard that uh, the Underground Sea last year in Europe went for. They mentioned on stream that you would get some some painting, like not the actual Savannah, but something to replace it. Yeah, I, I sold that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I basically... Uh, I basically left with a bunch of money. Sorry. It's because the ideas that you you sell the card and then you get like a keepsake, something to remind you of the event. (laughs) Yeah, the the standing joke was I should have brought it home and used it as a playmat, but uh, that's... I uh, I was in a rush to get on the flight, so... Oh, okay. Did you did you leave the same night? Yes, I left. Literally, the finals ended two hours before my flight left. I hope you didn't tell the dealer when you negotiated for the card. <laughs> <laughs> no, we uh, we 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 got out fine. Okay, great. So I so... owned it for a grand total of five minutes. I think five, ten, fifteen minutes or something after uh-huh. the picture, and then we're on. <laughs> and then he flipped it. Yeah, as long as you <laughs> yeah. your priorities, great, great. that's all it takes. So, HJ, thanks for talking about your run. Would you recommend this deck to for anyone looking to get into Legacy to to have a ton of fun in this format? Is it something people should look into? Uh, yeah, I think certainly. If they own Savannah, win, their own Savannah. <laughs> if they, uh, you know, apart from the fact that Savannah obviously is is not the right duel you want to win with the deck, given that it it doesn't cast any significant spells in Magic. Sorry, it, it might cast some useful spells, but not really ones that I would consider to be core to my expertise. But um, it helps with Sea Trino. It does help with Sea Trino, yeah. if, if that's what you want to do with life. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't understand why you would do that if you could play Hymn to Torach, Brainstorm, and Death Ride Shaven. I think um, sort of the, the key uh, say was yes, I would, I would recommend it. It's not actually that super hard to play. But you really need to know your your role in each matchup and you need to know your sideboarding. That's where uh, the big edges come from. Uh, so mm-hmm. if someone wants to pick up the deck, that's my key, key, key advice, is really sit down and think critically through all of the matchups and what your role is in each of them. Uh, and then you can switch the, the, the plays around, right? So, you know, we have I have Jason, I have Life from the Loam and the sideboard for grind matchups, for example. I have some removal. Those could be other removal spells. They could be other grind spells. They could be other sweepers. But you really want to know when you bring what type of card in, and uh, then you can, you can adapt it on the fly. Okay, great. So, uh, speaking of this tournament, we not only have one guy who top aided that, we also have Bob around here. Which, Matt, basically leaves you as the only guy in this podcast who has never had an Eternal Weekend Top 8 thus far. So you know what you, you should work towards. Like I should after go to Eternal Weekend next year and, and go kick ass and then see Drino everyone out of the game. Yeah. Well, you should come to the European one, uh, first of all, and then also like kick ass at the the North American one. Like You could make a double Top 8 in a single year. Please, please don't Top 8 with C Trino. People will play that nonsense forever if it happens. 
Please don't do that to me. I can't take it. As soon as they printed, I, uh, as as they printed uh, Total Push, I was I like, oh my God, now people are going to be able to answer my siege rhinos. It was a terrible day. <laughs> so, Bob, so well, Bob, you, I, were at a, you were at Adrenal no, no. Weekend. It can so be done. what did you play? Who did you travel with? Tell us tell us about your experience. Yeah, so I also had a pretty great weekend. Um, two weekends in a row, actually. I played Grixis Deliver at both events, uh, one card different each event. And uh, I did well. A lot of my friends who played my list and had my sideboard guide also did well. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident in saying that like my Grixis Delver list is one of the best lists out there so it was awesome weekend so tell us how you got to your list like uh, obviously i'm looking at your your eternal weekend list right now and like walk us through why are you playing two anglers and two true nate like walk us through your choices yeah so yeah much like what hj did probably like you know we keep an eye on the metagame and as it watch it as it shifts so i think the major shift that happened you know, since the Miracles ban is the rise of these blue Jace decks. Like, I'm talking about Miracles, I'm talking about Check File. And so these decks, you know, they're they're not so weak to Cabal Therapy like Combo is, but they are a little bit weaker to Spell Pierce, and they are control decks fundamentally. So what do you want to do against control decks as an aggressive Delver deck? You want to make sure that you always have a threat. So basically, I didn't make too many changes from, quote-unquote, you know, the stock old Noah Walker lists. But I did, you know, cut the therapies, and then I added another threat, I added another spell pierce. And even though it's just, like, two slots, you know, in a deck with cantrips, those two slots can matter a lot. And obviously, you know, you tweak the sideboard to make sure you have a good plan for every matchup. You know, recent tweaks that I made in the sideboard were I, you know, I always have three answers to Aether Vial in order to beat Death and Taxes, because that's what that matchup's about. And then I always have two answers to Chalice. And then, because of the recent rise in lands, reanimator, and turbo depths, I was playing two diabolic edict, which were very good as well. So it's like you know, when you're playing a Delver deck, I think in general, you know, against good players, your margin is not going to be that big, but you're never going to be an underdog either. Like I think you know, my scariest matchup might be something like miracles, but I still feel like I'm like maybe you know, 45 to 47 percent to win it. So that's like the biggest reason to play Delver is you're very consistent and you don't really have any bad matchups. So I guess that's that's pretty much the entire idea behind Crixus Delver these days, right? You you don't feel uncomfortable in any of the matchups. You're what people would call the like 50-50 deck against pretty much anything. And if you play well and you don't get like, I don't know, too unlucky, then you can easily top eight or even like top eight twice in a row like you did on the during the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, you... You've been playing the deck for yeah, quite a I while, mean, right? Being you know familiar with the deck and playing well is definitely the most important thing. But yeah, building up that familiarity is is great, and just you know having that consistency uh, with the Delver deck. Uh, you know when you when you play Delver and you're good to Delver, Delver's good to you. So why? <laughs> so I have a question for you though. A and lot Delver's of people, been very I mean, good to you. We were playing Team Estonia, aka Grixis, for a long time. Uh, and only it truly became good, I mean, obviously with the printings of, say, PZ and Angler and, well, Fatal Push, but yet, I'm looking at your list here, and how many Fatal Push are you running? Zero, because I think it's funny, to me, the uh, success of Fatal Push has almost removed the necessity of Fatal Push. Like, if you look at the top eight of Eternal Weekend, and, like, you know, the top 32 of the SEG, how many people play Tarmogoyf? I think it's, like, 
two people, and HJ happened to be one of them. So Tarmogoyf is clearly <laughs> still playable, but. Uh, in reality, Lightning Bolt really just kills all the things you needed to kill, as well as, you know, dealing better with mm-hmm. Planeswalkers. Uh, it doesn't kill Tarmogoyf, but as I said, the success of Fatal Push has almost pushed out Tarmogoyf. And what was your major change between those two tournaments? So between um, Eternal Weekend, you said there was, I think, two slots off? Yeah, so I actually talked to um, Eric, who top-aided, he actually top-aided both the Legacy and the Vintage at Champs, and he had an abrade in his list. And I saw that, and I I basically didn't make a big change at all. I cut my second Ancient Grudge in order to play the Abraid, and it was very good. Overall, you know, I've I've known this list for a while now, and I've been playing it on Magic Online, and I know exactly, like, you know, every single card in my sideboard, I know exactly what matchup it comes in. I've done, like, you know, a matchup mapping so that I know, like, oh, this matchup, I take out four cards, and I bring in these four cards, and I go through my list of, like, you know, 10 or 20 matchups because it's Legacy, and I make sure that every matchup, I'm like, you know, pretty happy with every single card in my deck post sideboard. Um, so it's a it's a finely tuned machine, and every slot, you know, makes a very big difference. And like I like the abrade because it's basically another removal spell, but it also allows me to hit my numbers against, you know, answers for Ether Vial, answers for Chalice. So it ticks off a lot of boxes for me. Could you put some words just out of interest from my side around what cards you typically would board out? Yeah, so like unlike Bug Delver, I, I also played a lot of Bug Delver. I love the deck. Um, Bug Delver is a much more of a mid-range deck where you can pick your role. And that's the kind of deck, you know, as you talked about, it's important to know your role. I think Grixis Delver is almost always going to be the aggressor. Um, your spells are just so efficient and you have the reach. So you really just want to focus on, you know, getting ahead, staying ahead. Um, so I don't typically, I would never board out Delver. I would never board out Deathrite. Uh, in some combo matchups, you can board out some creatures and board in some therapies. And then in the fair matchups, you often board out like uh, against the creature decks, you board out spell peers. So I would say sideboarding with the deck is um, a little bit more straightforward than it is with Bug Delver. Do you ever, when do you board out force? Um, I usually board out force against like a lot of the Stoneblade decks. Because the nice thing about dipping into red is you have a lot of good answers to artifacts. So you have, you know, the red removal spells like Ancient Grudge, but you also have the black discard spells like Ball Therapy, which are also very good against Stoneforge. So against those decks, I find you don't need the Force of Will. Obviously against combo decks, you want Force of Will. And I find in the Delver Mirror as well, you also often want Force of Will because so many games are dictated by tempo instead of card advantage. So usually on the draw, like in the mirror, I would leave in, you know, one or two Force of Wills just to make sure. And I think you also mentioned talking about, like, forcing turn one Deathrite Shaman. I think for me, if I have, like, a hand with plenty of lands, then I would consider not forcing it. But if I'm really light on mana, and if I don't have a Lightning Bolt, I would definitely just force it. Because, as you mentioned, like, the tempo swing can just get so out of control. There's so many games where you just don't get to play any magic if they lead on a Deathrite Shaman and Wasteland you out. So, yeah, you mentioned that your friends were also doing well with the deck, and one of them also top aided, right? Playing your exact list? Yeah, so actually, at Eternal Weekend, uh, I played a win and win against my friend Dan Signorini, who is also a very accomplished Delver pilot. So he did very well, obviously. Uh, and then at the SCG, I had one friend make top eight and two friends make top 32, uh, and they all had my list and sideboard guide. So it was, it was really just an amazing weekend to do well and have your friends do well with you. That's, that's always the best feeling in the world for me when you can have that happen. 
yeah, it also really goes to show like how much work you put into the deck. Like you just told us about like all your sideboard plans that are perfectly mapped out. And uh, to me, it's just like super impressive when people like stick to the same list, to the same sideboard, sideboard plans and consistently do well. Because at that point, it's not like a random spike in, in your like success, uh, but it's also like it shows that the deck and the list is very capable. And I think people should... I guess in the near future, we will see a lot of people pick up that exact list and do well in tournaments with it. And it's also nice when you can get a group of people together and, for example, run the same list through a tournament because sometimes, just through your matchups, I mean, you could have a really tight list, but you face Mono Red Burn all day or Manalist Dredge and, you know, you don't do well and, you know, maybe that's not a direct reflection of what could have happened. So having, like you said, three or four guys run through the list and all do well really goes to show, like Julian was saying, how much work you put in and how well adapted the deck is to the meta. Yeah, so I, I agree with all of that. I think maybe we so, could transition a little bit into talking about the state of Legacy. Buckdiver, Grixis Diver, doing really well in Legacy right now. Why is that? Or let's phrase it that way. What do you think Legacy is all about right now? Because Checkpile has probably been like the big thing of the last two months or something. But it hasn't really shown up in quite... It has shown up in quite large numbers, but it hasn't really put up the results that you would think it would, at least judging from the Legacy, Legacy Online metagame, which has tons of that tech. I mean, so so it, it really is... I think Checkpile has had a huge effect on the format uh, for two reasons, I would say. Uh, I think the first is that Checkpile drives out a lot of the other fair decks, um, so, you know, decks like Stoneblade, decks like Miracles, uh, Shardless, uh, decks like Delver. If you don't build your Delver deck correctly, you get absolutely munched on by Checkpile. So that's for one thing. The other thing is that Checkpile itself is actually a very beatable deck if you want to beat it. And and so it's it, I feel like the format has gotten into this sort of uh, cyclicality where... I mean- you know, if a, if a format gets too fair, Checkpile come, turns up and eats all the fair decks. Um, but if the format becomes too unfair, then it, it eats the Checkpile deck and open up, opens up for the Delver decks. So would you say that that's actually like uh, a sweet spot for a lot of co- uh, combo decks to occupy right now? Like, I, I felt like there was kind of a resurgence of the Epic Storm, which might be partially due, due to Brian Cook putting up a lot of work and putting out a lot of content lately. Or is it actually like more well, better positioned than it used to? Storm should be well positioned. I mean, because it's Storm is good against a lot of the the good decks. It's good against uh, Checkpile. It's good against Grixis Delver. It's it's good against uh, sorry if you have the other fair decks. Um, but for some reason, it's not doing very well. My guess is it's it's based off of the variants that Storm faces, but I, I'm not so sure. Uh, Storm did all the combo decks. There was a lot of combo at Eternal Weekend, but it, it didn't convert into top eights. So, Bob, what do you think about Legacy right now? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on the format. Um, I think, you know, as Hans, as HJ mentioned, like, I think Checkpile is great. Grixis Delver is great. I think, for me, I see the various Grixis decks, whether it be, you know, Grixis Control, Grixis Delver, Checkpile. I think those are the tier one decks. Uh, I think the tier two decks, there are very, very, very many tier two decks. You know, there's lands, turbo Death, sneak and show, storm, death and taxes, elves, infect, like you name it. I think all those decks can easily take down a tournament, but I would rank them like a tier below the Grixis decks that are kind of just everywhere right now. 
And I think I think this is almost always just going to be true as long as Death Rite's in the format. It's just such an overpowering card that gives you so much game against both the fair decks and unfair decks. And added to the fact that, hey, if you're playing Death Rite, you're playing Brainstorm, you have access to the most selection. So it's almost like every tournament, you're doing the same thing no matter which deck you're playing. You're just tooling the extra cards to beat what the metagame is. Um, so that's like the main power of the blue deck, and it's always been that way. Yeah, Death Rite Shaman is certainly a... It's hard to justify paying a fair deck in this format without Death Rite Shaman. Agreed. I was going to say this is basically a Death Rite Shaman brainstorm format at the moment i mean look at the look at the eternal weekend every deck not including the delver deck the teamer delver deck and the eldrazi deck are playing for death right shaman and there's also a lot of him to truck going around as well i mean not in every piece but there's also a lot of hand disruption so it's i think the key is also information i mean look at i mean i'm sure bob can tell us about the merits of getaxium probe in how well that deck plays Probe is amazing. Like, it gives you free info, and, like, in general, the two life doesn't even matter. Like, the information is so much more valuable than the two life that it's definitely a key part of why Grixis Delver is the best Delver deck. Who knew Phyrexian mana could be uh, so powerful, right? So, from my impression, one of the big things that used to be going on in Legacy, which has slightly slowed down lately, is that all the fair mid-range decks kind of had this, this race to the top, like, People try to go or like one up each other in a mid range game and try the even slower, even grindier card. And in a way, that, that's also another thing that opens up a slot or a, a spot in the meta game for combo, especially fast combo decks, which I think might not be too horribly positioned right now. But at a certain point, it gets too much. Like, if your checkpile deck turns into a Nickfit deck, you're probably doing it wrong. Like, back Nickfit, people have been trying that deck for a while and they still do. But I think one of the, the inherent things about checkpile is that if it has to, it can still quite quickly create game states that are pretty hard to recover from, just card advantage wise. Like, Colagan's Command is, to me, is one of the most defining cards in Legacy right now. At least for me, from the Earth's perspective, I really don't want to run artifacts anymore right now because it feels so bad to get something like Kodagans Command and rebought a, a Snapcaster Mage. It's it's awful. As any fair deck, how many times can you get Snapcaster Kodagans Command before you decide to lose faith? So, Matt, would, would you bring in something like Leyland of the Void against Checkpile? And like Ground Seal, I think I'd rather play. That's also a card that we have seen a lot more often lately, usually in Storm, though. Well, yeah, I mean, shutting off the Deathrite Shamans and the Snapcaster Mages and whatever goodies they try to bring in, I mean, that definitely helps quite a bit. So, is there a deck that's underplayed in Legacy right now? Do you think that there's a deck that could completely wreck the meta that people are not really playing? Or is there no secret tech to be had right now? Or if there was, we didn't know Julian. about it? Uh, you know, there's, there's this uh, secret deck that plays uh, that's uh, Bog Colors with uh, Delvers and Hymns that's kind of well-positioned. Oh, you, you mean that, that that random deck that somebody actually took to Eternal Weekend a couple of weeks ago? Uh, I, think, I think it won some local tournament in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, what I was wondering, what do you guys think about lands right now? Because I've never seen lands versus checkpile, or at least I didn't really see it often enough or think about it often enough to really have an opinion on that. But like when people are trying to be grindy and mid-rangey, especially in four-color decks, lands should technically be really good against that. 
but maybe Bob, you know something about that? Yeah, I mean, lands is a very powerful deck. Um, the only issue I see with lands right now is it's facing a lot of hate. You know, people are running tons of surgicals, tons of edicts. People are still running Blood Moon. So it's it's actually a fine deck, but it needs to fight through a lot more than it used to. I was going to say, a lot of these decks have trouble beating the 2020, so they've started packing edicts. And, I mean, it's not like lands is a bunch of ways to deal with the edicts. Um, one effect that we didn't talk about that's super important is a lot of the decks, because Miracles no longer exists, Miracles used to be a deck that to beat Miracles, you really had to take it seriously and pack your sideball with hate. You have so much, many slots now. So in Team America, I, I've, I've gotten to completely rebuild the deck. Storm as well used to bring in like 10 cards for Miracles, and now they don't even know what to do with all that space. So that could also be why Lance is getting a little bit more hate than it used to. Maybe that's also why Combo isn't having as strong of a showing as we thought it might. Because I, I can feel the same for le for elves. Because in elves it was was like you need cards against Delva, you need cards against Miracles, and you need cards against Combo. Usually you didn't really have a lot against Combo, but lately, and especially since Miracles is gone, I've been playing stuff like Mindbreak Traps again and been having a lot of success with it on Magic Online. And Mindbreak Trap is a card that I would have never had the slots to ever play during the Miracles era. So yeah, maybe maybe that does some really some. Definitely something to it that people get to hate more fringe decks a lot harder now. Canadian Threshold, by the way, tends to be uh, so it, it top aided Eternal Weekend, it top aided GP Vegas. It feels like it's the kind of deck that you don't see a lot of people playing it, but for some reason there's always one of them in the top eight. So maybe that's a deck that's uh, that's a hidden gem. Uh, from what I see, it also top aided SCG DC. And the guy was also only playing three Tarmogoyf, <laughs> but no Tombstalkers, of course. What? He was playing all the free, ta free Tarmogoyf? That's a ton of Tarmogoyf <laughs> in that deck. He also played two Spellsnare, which is a card I thought that might come back, like, much sooner. Oh, yes. So I've been, so I've been running a standstill list over the last couple of weeks and been really enjoying it. And I'm playing the deck with, like, a lot of removal and Liliana the Last Hope and Jace, and it's... And three spell snare and three snapcaster and spell snare has been exceptionally good. So, what are the cards you're typically trying to counter with it? I guess the obvious one is Stoneforge Mythic. Uh, him to it's a lot of him to Torak or just being on the draw and being able to counter the spell untap standstill. PZ sometimes. Um, sometimes you get a Tarmogoyf every once in a while when somebody decides to play it. Uh, Baleful Tricks, but it's a lot of him to Torak. Or even the best of all, you can counter Elfish Visionary. It is such a win because you take your dead card and you trade it for their best card and you dance all around. <laughs> it's the best feeling in the universe. <laughs> okay, so guys, uh, that sums it up for our podcast this week, uh, <laughs> which doesn't imply that there's going to be one next week. Uh, Matt. Up, what are we aiming to do? I think it's something like once a month seems reasonable because there's tons of things to do for us uh, these days. It's not like, at least for me, it's not like I was back in university or stuff and had tons of free time. But we are really trying to make this something like a monthly thing. And I'm really looking forward to future episodes. If you guys want to get in contact with us, how can you do that? You can visit itsjulian.com where I will host this podcast. But you can also check out like all of our Twitter accounts minus at it's Julian twenty three. Matt, yours is I uh, Twitter. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it. <laughs> it really. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if you really want to talk to Matt, you can, you can look can... me up in the local white pages. 
of Vancouver. The real know it's still the nineties over there. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing if somebody actually did that. <laughs> I guess if you really want to talk to Matt, you can actually find him on the source where he he's got that sweet avatar. Um, you're using that black mage from Final Fantasy V, right? I am. That's correct. And I only recently got to learn that you never played that game. <laughs> that's that's also correct. I guess you didn't miss much because I really don't like Final Fantasy V, but I love four and six and many others, but especially four and six. Okay, so Bob, how can people contact you? How where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm also on Twitter, like Julian. My Twitter is at Grizzlepuff. So find me there. And do you also have? Uh, Oh, yeah, no, no, you don't. <laughs> oh, actually, you do stream, right? Uh, I do stream sometimes, and my Twitch is also Grizzlepuff. Uh, HJ, do you actually have a Twitter account? I'm not sure. No, I, I, I try to avoid social media. People might just contact me on them. <laughs> they, they, can, they can write me on Facebook if they really want to get a hold of me. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I hope that we can do this again sometime soon. And uh, if you want to hear from us a certain particular thing that we should talk about, let us know. Okay. So that's it for tonight. For me, it's 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, for you guys, it's probably a lot earlier. I'm going to head to bed now. Goodbye, everyone, and see you again next time. Ciao. Thank you.